Well, let me uh, invite you this morning to take a copy of God's Word and turn with me in the Old Testament to the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, as some might be used to calling it. Um, we'll get back to First Peter. Um, you might be wondering, why are we doing this? Well, uh, we have this Old Testament survey class, uh, and Jeff has very kindly uh, offered to organize, so he's responsible for lining up teachers, and he exercised his executive authority to assign to me a song of songs. And I started to study this week, and things got carried away. Well, not this week, I should say, a couple weeks ago. And I quickly realized there's no way I'm going to do all of this in a Sunday school class, so I might as well preach a sermon on it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the Song of uh, Songs, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the introductory verses. We'll get back to 1 Peter, Lord willing, uh, <clears throat> next week. Uh, but, you know, I, I, think it's, uh, I think it's right to say that uh, in many ways today, <clears throat> the Song of Songs is uh, typically treated as, uh, as a problem. It's a problem. For some, it's a problem of propriety. Can I, can I, really, can I really talk about these things in front of a congregation spanning uh, little children to grandparents. For others, it's a problem of interpretation. How, how should we read this book? How are we to understand um, the Song of Songs? And what are we to make of the seemingly fanciful interpretations of some of the giants of the faith throughout the Christian tradition? And finally, for some, it's a problem of genre. Uh, this is... This is poetry, and love poetry at that. I think for many of us, we're, we're, we're comfortable with the epistles, right? Just give us the straight-up teaching of Peter or Paul or the Gospels. But love poetry? Well, that's not really in our wheelhouse, so no thank you. And as a result of these challenges... Today, I think Song of Songs is often ignored. In fact, one commentator I read even spoke of the functional decanonization of the book of the Song of Songs in the church today. But in contrast, Christians throughout history viewed the Song of Songs not as a problem to be solved, but as a clear and pivotal portion of God's word through which we are better equipped to read the rest of the Bible. In other words, the Song of Songs is not a problem needing to be unlocked. Instead, it is a lens for us to look through. And that's because the Song of Songs takes us to the very heart of what the Bible is really all about. Bob said this morning in Sunday school, that if you wanted to sum up the message of the Bible, it's that God will have a people for himself through Jesus Christ. Forgive me if I got that wrong. That's a paraphrase. But he said something like that. Well, Song of Songs is all about how God in Christ will have a people for himself. And it's displayed for us in the imagery of a marriage. So if you come to Sunday school, I don't know when it is. I think it's at the start of the new year, so in several weeks, we'll take a, a closer look at song, songs, 
But today we're just going to think about how we should read the song, first of all, and then we'll reflect on a couple of its major themes that are repeated uh, throughout this poem. So let's turn our attention uh, to the reading of uh, this passage, first of all, the Song of Songs, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Let's hear God's word together. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out, therefore virgins love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Well, the Song of Songs begins with an astonishing claim. From the very outset of the very first verse of this poem, we encounter the claim that this is the greatest song that has ever been sung. That's the point of the expression in verse 1, song of songs. Like other biblical expressions, such as, Uh, holy of holies, or king of kings, and lord of lords, song of songs communicates that this is the greatest. This is the greatest of songs. It's a superlative. This passion-filled piece of poetry is the best, most sublime song ever written. And that's an astonishing claim, especially when you consider some of the other songs in Scripture. Uh, This song claims to be greater than the song of the sea in Exodus 15. Claims to be greater than Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32. Greater than the song of Deborah in Judges 5. Greater than the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Greater even than all of the songs of David in the book of Psalms. But why? Why? What makes this song stand out as the song of songs, the greatest song of all? Well, I want us to think about that question this morning as we reflect on this song in three parts. We'll start by looking at the introduction, the first four verses that we've just read. And then we'll go on, as I said, to consider (coughs) two refrains that are repeated throughout this song, which give us two themes um, that we're going to reflect on. But before before we look at the introduction, I think it's worth asking the question, how do we read this book? How do we rightly read this love poem? Now we're painting in, in broad strokes here, but historically, there have been two primary ways the song has been interpreted. On the one hand, some have said that this love poem isn't really about marital love. It's a love poem, yeah, but but it's really just meant to point us beyond itself to a spiritual reality, namely the marital, covenantal love of God for his people. On the other hand, some suggest this book is merely 
a literal love song. So it's only about the romantic love between a husband and a wife. And so we shouldn't go on, you know, spiritualizing the text and seeing something more than that in this book. Some will make that case. And these two approaches, they've they've provoked a lot of debate throughout the history of interpretation. For my own part, I'm convinced that the most faithful reading of the Song of Songs is one that refuses to make a simplistic choice between these two ways of reading, which are really not rightly understood if they are divorced from one another. And so the Song of Songs celebrates the earthly ecstasy of love uh, between a husband and wife while pointing to something greater. And I think significant problems arise if we focus on one to the exclusion of the other. We need to reflect upon both if we're going to rightly read this greatest song of all. And so, for example, those who reject that this is about marital love, they're not only forced to, to, to deny the obvious, but often end up making some rather odd and weird statements. So those who reject that the Song of Songs really is talking about marital love inevitably end up having to say some awkward things. We have some examples of this within our own circles. So for example, Matthew Henry. Many of us appreciate Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible. Matthew Henry, when he comes to the Song of Songs, says when we apply ourselves to the study of this book, we must forget that we have bodies. And that, that, I hope that strikes you as not only odd, but incredibly unhelpful. Because it tears apart what God has joined together in the human person. God not only created and blessed human beings with bodies, but with complementary uh, male and female bodies so that they could be physically joined together in marriage. And this song is an unblushing celebration of that physical union. On the other hand, those who reject the greater significance of the song with reference to God's covenant love for his people, they not only miss the main point of the song, but by extension, the main point of the whole Bible. They are like those Jesus speaks in, or rebukes really in John chapter 5, Verse 39, you you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. And so while there should be no question that the song celebrates marital intimacy, we can't stop there. Jesus won't let us. He insists that the whole Bible, including the love poetry of the Song of Songs, bears witness about him. And so I hope we'll avoid (coughs) these two errors as we really try to enter into the wonder of this love song, which points to, I I think the best way to capture it is to say something like it points us to God's incarnate love for us in Jesus Christ. Song of Songs, which points us to God's incarnate love for us in Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's, let's take a look at these first four verses, which introduces the song as a whole. After the title in verse 1, 
the song itself begins with this abrupt outpouring of passionate desire that really sets the tone for the poem as a whole. It begins with the cry of a woman longing to be kissed. And she quickly rattles off three reasons. First says, because his love is better than wine. And the Bible speaks elsewhere, doesn't it, about the, the merriment, the, the joy, the gladness that wine gives to the heart of man. And we're meant to have that in our minds. And this verse is communicating that the merriment of a good wine is nothing compared to the joy of this man's love. The way wine gladdens the heart, actually, is a small-scale picture of the effect of his love. Second, she, she desires his love for his anointing oils are fragrant. Certainly, she finds him, we could say, altogether desirable, even the way he smells. But I think something else is being communicated here as well. The man described throughout the Song of Songs, we'll see this hopefully more in the Sunday school class, he's described as both a shepherd and in royal terms as a king. And there's all kinds of discussion about is this Solomon or is this just a royal figure depicted in Solomonic terms? That's discussion for another time. The most basic level, what you have here, is a shepherd king. And the language of anointing that's used here is the same exact word that is used in the Old Testament to refer to the anointing of David the shepherd as king and of Solomon's anointing as well. And so what she describes here is not merely the the pleasing aroma of oils, but the identity of the one she desires. Her heart longs for the anointed one, God's royal king. Now, we aren't told much about this woman, at least here. So, who, who is she? Well, she's, she's a bridal figure longing for face-to-face intimacy with her bridegroom. That's why she says in verse 4, draw me after you, let us run. And then in her imagination, the king has brought me into his chambers. And so, at the human level, in this song, you you have a a description throughout of, of, of an idealized marriage, of an ideal marriage. Love the way God designed it to be between a husband and a wife, the bride and the bridegroom, both desiring and delighting in one another. And the song begins here with the bride desiring the love of her bridegroom and longing to be with him. But you see, at another level, this describes the longing of the people of God, does it not? It describes the longing of the bride of Christ, The love of our anointed shepherd king is better than wine. And the longing of our lives is to be drawn after him and to be brought into his chamber where together we will exalt and rejoice in him. And so the Song of Songs, while celebrating marital love, 
at the same time is pointing us to an even greater reality. The love of God in Christ for his precious bride and his beloved's responsive love to him. It's a description, you see, the Song of Songs is nothing less than a description of what we have been saved for. Just consider the implications of that truth for a minute, that this is not only what we were made for, but saved for. The Song of Songs reveals God's love for us in Christ. And that means that one of the most important ways that we come to know God in Christ is by analogy with the earthly love and ecstasy that is enjoyed in marriage, marriage as God designed it to be. Is it any wonder, therefore, that in the Old Testament and in the New, God is deeply concerned with Christian marriages, with marriages that are patterned after his design for a particular reason that we will come to at the end. Marriage is ordered by God to be a signpost pointing beyond itself to the union between Christ and his bride. And so I think it's right to say that a litmus test for the extent to which we have really come to grips with the gospel is whether we are able to read the Song of Songs as a song that ultimately helps us know our king and our shepherd as the great lover of our souls. We need to be able to read the Song of Songs and affirm what Jesus says, that the whole Bible really is about him. And if we can add to that, him in relation to his people. Now that that brings us to the two themes that I want us to consider this morning. So to Perhaps turn over the page to chapter 2 and take a look at verse 7. This is the first refrain and theme, and it's all about um, desiring and waiting. Okay, The first theme, desiring and waiting. So in verse 7 we read, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, (coughs) by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This refrain is repeated no less than three times in the Song of Songs. And I think it's one of the most important guides that we're given for how we're to read the song um, as a whole in its entirety. It tells us that the song was written not merely to incite passion, but also to urge patience. And does that sound strange to your ears, that one of the goals of the Song of Songs is to incite passion and to urge patience. For some today, I think that might even sound like a contradiction or even worse, perhaps a form of torture as you read the song. But on reflection, I think this apparent tension has some very important lessons to teach us. This repeated call for patience, one of the things you have to recognize is it is strategically placed at some of the most passionate peaks of the poem. And it's placed there strategically in order to help us see and appreciate what it is that we're waiting for. And so just before urging the daughters of Jerusalem to patience in chapter two, verse seven, we read, 
He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. See, she's, she's smitten with love. And then you have this imagery. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. Takes us to this passionate peak, and then it says, I adjure you by the gazelles and does of the field that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now, what's going on here? Why, why is this call to patience repeated in these strategic places throughout the song? We need to recognize that it's not to repress passionate desires, but rather the intention is to refine them. We need to understand that the Bible's intention is not to repress human desire but to refine it. So right when we get to some of the most excited and even intimate parts of the poetry, this call to patience interjects. And again, the point is not you need to repress those strong desires. It's that you need to wait for the proper time so that love can be fully and rightly enjoyed. Don't you think that speaks a needed word to people today? In a culture that sells the message that sex is all about satisfying your own desires and and not service and love to another. And in a culture where we're tempted toward all kinds of perversions designed to stir up and satisfy, try to satisfy strong desires outside of God's ordained context for physical intimacy. You see, in our sin, we've come up with cheap substitutes to avoid cultivating and waiting for the real thing. Pornography is an obvious example, isn't it? Pornography is one of the artificial means that we, that we use to, to stir up, to stimulate, and to try to satisfy powerful desires. But ask yourself, what, what does pornography actually do? It doesn't satisfy anyone, does it? No, it wreaks havoc and it destroys. It dehumanizes everyone involved. And even secular sources, all the secular literature today on pornography is recognizing the harmful effects that it has on virtually everyone. Casual dating is another example. Developing a romantic connection with someone when the end goal is in fact not marriage. That kind of relationship, what does it do? It stirs up all kinds of powerful desires and lets love grow out of season. This is why it's so important for us to hear this refrain. The Bible does not not seek to repress desire for intimacy. What it does want to do is refine our desires so that intimacy can be fully enjoyed. And so this call for patience is repeatedly placed immediately after some of the most emotional, passionate, and even sexually charged parts in order to infuse patience with a sense of purpose. Of course, This refrain has some important applications for young people waiting for marriage. 
After all, we could say that's the group that's directly in view here, addressing the, the daughters, the young women of Jerusalem, though I think it has reference to um, another group as well. But the truth, and that's what I want to get to here, truth is that this call to patience has significance for all of us. Because as members of the bride of Christ, we're all waiting, aren't we? We're all waiting. We are all waiting for Jesus, our bridegroom, to appear. We are all waiting for face-to-face fellowship with him. And we're all longing for the marriage supper of the Lamb and the consummation of all things. Not not too long ago... um, Travis and Kelsey were were married at the Huntsberger farm, and not too long before that, uh, Caleb and Lindsay were married at the Van Grau farm. And at both receptions, they had, I, I don't know, is it actually called an anniversary dance? Is that, is that what it's called? We'll go with that. The anniversary dance where couples are invited out onto the dance floor, and then um, you know, if you've been married for five, less than five years, go be seated. Ten years, go be seated. And eventually it's, it's whittled down to um, a single couple that has perhaps been married for 40, 50, perhaps even 60 years. And that happened at both receptions. And, and both of those occasions stuck in my mind because there we were on those, those days celebrating these newlyweds. And now there we were celebrating Um, God's grace to this couple who's been married for most of their lives. But you know, the most fundamental reason that we were there celebrating as Christians is because all of these marriages are ultimately pointing us forward to a greater marriage that is yet to come. A marriage that will never pass away. A marriage that will be perfect as God designed it to be. Sometimes, though, it can be excruciatingly painful to wait. But the Song of Songs is reminding us that it'll all be worth it. John John gives us a glimpse uh, of what's to come as um, we wait as Christians. In, In Revelation chapter 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Who is this bridal city? It's the people of God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So brothers and sisters, the new Jerusalem, the people of God, prepared as a bride adorned in fine linen, bright and pure for her bridegroom. And John is saying the marriage supper of the Lamb will come. And God himself will be with us and he will be our God and we will be his people and we will be fully happy and satisfied in, in him. And so now, what do we do? We wait with patience. We wait for Jesus Christ to appear so that we may be with him where he is. And the Song of Songs gives us a picture of that. 
And so that's the first theme that not only informs <laughs> those who are preparing for marriage, but informs all of us as Christians as we await the marriage supper of the Lamb, this theme of desiring and waiting. Now this second theme um, I want you to turn to, it's another repeated refrain throughout this poem. It's the theme of possessing and belonging, or belonging and possessing. So turn to verse 16 in chapter 2. It's the first time this refrain appears. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Now, this is the first of three similar statements where the woman describes the relationship that she shares with her man as one of mutual belonging and delight. And it's meant to help us understand, this is important for us to hear, this is meant to help us understand the very essence of the marriage relationship as God designed it to be. Bob talked about rabbit trails. I'm about to go on a rabbit trail, Bob, so I may need to draw back in a moment. But friends, please understand this. If, if we think the marriage relationship at its most basic level, at its most fundamental level, is meant to be understood in terms of authority and submission, we are badly going to distort God's design for marriage. And folks who take that particular position, everything's about who's in charge, who has the authority, and who's supposed to submit, usually that's also their view of God and how we relate to him. God is the authority, and our life is one of abject submission. Now, without jettisoning the biblical concepts of headship and submission, we need to understand that marriage as God designed it to be at its most fundamental level is about love and companionship. If we get that wrong, we're going to distort God's design for marriage. And so I think in our own cultural context and frankly within the culture of the church today, we would do well to to return to Song of Songs and be reminded of that. By God's design, marriage is meant to be a relationship of mutual belonging and delight, companionship. If you trace this theme throughout the Song of Songs as a whole, you'll discover a progression of this theme of belonging. The very first time this theme appears in the passage that we've, we've just read, uh, the, the woman initially focuses on possessing her beloved. You notice that? My beloved is mine. And then she talks about belonging to him, right? He is mine and I am his. That's the order of the first refrain. But then, this is so fascinating. The next time this refrain appears, the order changes. So in chapter 6, verse 3, she doesn't begin with, my beloved is mine, but with, I am my beloved's. Isn't that an interesting development, an interesting shift in the refrain? The focus now, initially, is on belonging. 
And, and that's not all because the last time the refrain occurs in chapter 7, verse 10, the woman has all but lost herself as she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Now what makes this dramatic progression all the more striking, I think, is that there are only three places where this particular Hebrew word for desire occurs in the Bible. The first one might surprise you. The first time this word for desire appears in the Hebrew scriptures is Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. There we read, and this is the new um, ESV translation of this passage. Again, the context here, after the fall, uh, God announcing um, judgment on Adam and Eve, the serpent, and really all of creation. He says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now that's the ESV's revision of the text. And if you were with us for our Sunday school class on gender, I was pretty upfront by saying, I think that's not a helpful translation at all. Um, there's a whole story behind why the translation committee, committee translates this verse as your desire shall be contrary to your husband when it really should just say your desire shall be for your husband. We're not going to get into that now other than to say that's, I think, the way it should be read. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. In other words, in a fallen world, the woman will desire her husband to have him. Now, in a fallen world, of course, that means that desire itself will be disordered at times. But desire itself to have and to belong is not itself a bad thing. It's not a sinful thing. But the verse goes on to say that the relationship will be further distorted, not only by disordered desire at times, but distorted because the husband will now sinfully seek to extend the dominion mandate which God had given him to rule over all of creation, now to his bride, something he had never been charged by God to do. He was never charged by God to rule over her, but to rule with her by his side. See, the, the Hebrew word... It appears a second time in the very next passage um, in Hebrew, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. And you'll know that this time the word for desire refers to sin's desire to, to have Cain. And, and here, of course, the connotation of desire is negative, right? Sin, sin wants to have Cain in order to destroy him. But guess where? You already know, but... But guess where this final occurrence of this Hebrew word for desire occurs in the Old Testament? It's here in Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10. It's the last place that it's found in Scripture where the woman puts her beloved before herself and says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. And notice his desire is not to rule over her in some kind of domineering way. Indeed, he rules for her 
but his desire is to have her as his own and to delight in her. So you see what's being communicated in this refrain. It's it's really wonderful news at the end of the day. At the level of earthly human marriage, it reminds us that one of the purposes of marriage, one of the fundamental purposes of marriage is the purpose of companionship, of mutual belonging, and that even in this fallen world, such desire and delighting is possible by the grace of God. It won't be perfect. It won't fully satisfy. But it can be good. Excuse me. (coughs) See, throughout the song... The bride desires her husband and takes delight in being his. And and by the end, her sole focus is on belonging to him and his desire being for her. And the desire here, it's it's not sinful. It's not self-serving. It's the desire to have and to hold. It's the desire for companionship, withness. And this is a picture of marriage as God designed it to be because human marriage, again, is meant to be a picture of something far, far greater. And today we we see this in marriages where husbands and wives, they, they put each other first. Or they delight in belonging to one another and being each for the other. And as we witness it, don't we have to say it's, it's a beautiful thing to behold because in a marriage where a husband and wife put each other first, we have, as it were, a small-scale picture of paradise. I know some of us are here this morning and probably all of us in one way or another are thinking, well, this isn't a description of my marriage. That's also one of the points of the Song of Songs, dear friends. That yes, earthly marriage is gift. And it's a good thing. Sometimes it's a hard and heartbreaking thing, but in the end it was never meant to ultimately satisfy human desire and human longing. It was designed by God to point us to something that's eternal and unending and perfect. The marital love that God has for his people in Jesus Christ. And so there's wonderful hope and encouragement for us as we read through the Song of Songs in the midst of troubled marriages as well. But we should be thankful for the precious glimpses of marriage as God designed it to be in this life that we have. Because what does it do? At the end of the day, it makes Jesus look more glorious. After all, there's a reason Jesus first revealed his glory. That's what John says. He first revealed his glory where? At a wedding feast. At the beginning of John's gospel. And the reason he tells you about Jesus turning water into wine and the the amount of water that he turned into wine is because the Old Testament depicts Yahweh, the Lord, as the bridegroom of his people Israel in the Old Testament tells you that wine will overflow in the time of the Messiah. And so this is John, just a little cameo. It's his way of telling you that 
The Lord Yahweh has come as the bridegroom of his people, and he has come to find and secure for himself a bride. And that bride is actually pictured for us in the Gospel of John, two chapters later in John chapter 4. And guess who? The Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus, what did he do? He went out of his way to go to her and to give her the waters of eternal life. Jesus went out of his way, didn't he, to pursue us so that we might be his despite our sordid lives. And then Jesus goes on in the Gospel of John to show us how he really is the perfect husband who has laid down his life for his bride to cleanse and purify her for himself. That we might belong to him forever. And so as the bride of Christ say together, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. And so come back to that question, how, how can this be called the song of songs, the greatest song of all? This is rightly called the song of songs, brothers and sisters, the greatest song of all, because as Paul concludes in Ephesians chapter 5, that the mystery of marriage is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the riches of your word and the many different ways that Christ is uh, revealed to us and the many different ways that Christ meets us in the scriptures. Thank you for this love poem, the Song of Songs, which says so much to us of your love for us in Christ Jesus. And we pray that as we uh, enjoy his love, that we would grow in our love, our returning love to him, and all look forward as we wait to the day of his appear appearing in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Lord, we thank you that all our desires, all of our longings will be fully and finally and eternally satisfied in him, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.